Welcome to EWA's FinLit Podcast. EWA is a fee-only RAA based out of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. We hope all listeners of this podcast will benefit as we deep dive into uh, complex financial topics that we will make simplified for you. And we hope that this really serves as a catalyst so that you can make the best financial planning decisions uh, for your family and also save time. Welcome, everybody. On today's episode of FinLit, we're going to be talking about tax strategies for small business owners. So specifically, we're going to be talking about some tax strategies here with Ben and Chris from the EWA team, um, some of the unknown strategies that are out there. So um, just to get started, we are first going to talk about the, the difference between entity structures. So typically, uh, a business owner has the the option of what kind of business entity they want. Um, there's many ramifications of being a sole proprietorship versus you know an LLC, an LLC partnership, or an S corporation. Um, so just to narrow it down here, we're going to talk about the really the S corporation being one tip that we have for business owners. And the reason S corporation is a good entity uh, from a tax perspective is that. Let's just say there's a business owner that has a, you know, essentially a million dollars of profit that's including the compensation he pays himself. So if this business owner was a um, sole proprietorship, all million dollars would be subject to federal taxes, which start at 10% and go all the way up to 37%, um, which is graded. And the second one would, in, if, assuming in Pennsylvania, would be a Pennsylvania tax, which would be a 3.07% flat tax across the board. There would be local tax here in Pennsylvania, and then there would also be Medicare and Social Security tax. So um, the three that potentially could be avoided if you're an S corporation, uh, so for example, if Ben here was a sole proprietor, he would pay Social Security taxes on the first 160200 of that million, and then he'd also pay Medicare taxes, two sides of that, um, on the entire million dollars. So that'd be you know twenty nine thousand, one point four five on the employee side, one point four five on the employer side. That'd be twenty nine thousand of taxes, and he also pay local taxes. So Ben lives in uh, Shady Side, which has about a three percent local tax. That'd be another thirty thousand uh, of tax he would pay. But if instead, if Chris were an S corporation, and let's just say hypothetically we set up the W two. To be a hundred thousand, so that was his salary, and the other nine hundred thousand we set up to be a distribution. Um, Chris would save a lot of taxes, and how he would save those taxes is he would only pay Social Security taxes on the hundred thousand of W two, so sixty thousand two hundred where the cap is. He would avoid six point two percent on the employee and six point two percent on the employer side, so twelve point four percent of sixty thousand. That's over seven thousand he would save in Social Security tax. He would also avoid the Medicare tax at 2.9% of the 900000 um, That's over 26000 of taxes saved right there. He'd avoid the local taxes, the 3% on that 900000 of the distribution. So essentially, the salary would get taxed on all levels, but the distribution would avoid, of that 900000 60200 that would avoid Social Security taxes. All 900000 would avoid local taxes. All 900000 would avoid Medicare taxes. And so, you know, adding this up, and just in that example, there'd be over sixty thousand a year of, of taxes saved easily. Um, now, the downside of doing that for Chris is there's you know potentially an audit risk. So, Chris, talk to us about that. 
uh, the audit risk that could come into play. Like, let's say you were a doctor, a cardiologist on average that makes, you know, half a million dollars out there and you're underpaying yourself a hundred thousand a year in a private practice. Why would that be problematic? First problem would be me being a cardiologist. Um, good point. Beyond that, if you're too aggressive with it, that IRS, they know that they know what the going rate for a cardiologist is. And if you're paying yourself, you know, a $20,000 W2 for a a doctor, it's going to raise some flags. Um, so generally we want to have the W2 portion. That's something that, um, is relative to what you'd be earning if you're working at a hospital or somewhere else, just to, to make sure we're not getting audited and having to pay, you know, penalties or anything for underpaying on those taxes. Okay. So let's say hypothetically that, you know, you're a cardiologist, as scary as that sounds, the average salary, let's say for cardiologists is 400 grand. Mm-hmm. And so you were saying we'd want to pay the salaries 400 grand. So we, there'd still be a significant tax savings on that 600 now, assuming that million dollar total um, net number to you as the hundred percent owner of this S corporation would still save. Now there'd be no social security tax saved because we would have paid you all the way through the 160 plus beyond, right. but we'd still save Medicare tax and local tax. So almost 6% combined, assuming you live downtown Pittsburgh, which I know you do. Um, so there would still be 6% of six, 600,000, $36,000 of tax savings. Yeah. Now, Ben, what would be the other problem from a retirement plan perspective for Chris if he only paid himself a hundred thousand and he was trying to, you know, max out a four hundred one k or cash balance plan, what what troubles problems would arise for him? Yeah, really, the big issue that would come into play there is that all in, in terms of your four hundred one k, that's strictly based on your W two income. So if Chris pays himself a super low W two salary and takes a lot of distributions that make up his compensation, he could be limiting himself based on what he can put into his four hundred one k if his W-2 income is is low. For sure. So if he was trying to max out, there's, uh, Chris is obviously, are you under 50? I can't tell with that beard. Uh, yeah, All got right. some white hairs coming, but All right. still so under, under 50. Chris is under 50, for everyone that didn't know that. So there's 66,000 a year that he can put into a 401k, um, and that's made up of a couple components. So Chris, break those components down. Yeah. So the full amount that can technically go in is the 66, like you said. Um, the typical max that people think of whenever they think of how much can I put in, it's what's called your elective deferral. And that's what you can do is either pre-tax or Roth, and that's 22500 um, But if your plan allows, so if you're self-employed and you're designing the plan, you can write in the ability to do either after-tax contributions or profit-sharing contributions um, to fill that difference between 66 and 225. So if you had a plan for profit sharing and you only paid yourself a hundred thousand, we'd, we'd run into issues. Profit sharing is capped at 25%. So 25% of a hundred is 25. You add that to the 22, five and you're at a total of 47, five. So we have, we're not able to match max out the 66. However, an after tax is a dollar for dollar basis. So you could pay yourself a hundred thousand and do 22,500 in the Roth hypothetically and then do the rest up to that 66 and the after tax and then immediately convert that to Roth. So we'd have no problem maxing out a 401k at $100,000 salary if we want to do what's referred to as the mega backdoor Roth, where we'd run into issues if we were trying to get the tax deduction now and try to max out that profit sharing. However, in that $100,000 example, we could do a mix of all three. We could do the 22.5 Roth, we could do the profit sharing of 25 and we could do the difference that of the after tax and convert that to a Roth inside the plan. So many ways around that. But the, the key thing here is that, you know, S corporations are very advantageous from a tax perspective. 
but we don't recommend to be overly aggressive and make sure you pay yourself a salary that is industry standard. So if you get audited, um, which you're, you're already at a high risk of being audited because of you know being a uh, million-dollar income earner, you do so and you, you have guardrails around that that the IRS will not have issues with. And so we found if you can prove here's the average salary of a owner of a this kind of practice, pay yourself that. You're still going to have a ton of, of tax savings from being in this corporation. So where people run – so obviously there's a tax component. Now, let's say this S-corporation has multiple owners. So the S-corporation has three owners. Let's say one 60%, the other two are 20%. Is there any flexibility in distributions, Chris, when those profits get distributed? No. So the S-dividend, the portion that's being paid out above the W-2, that has to be split proportionally amongst the other partners based on whatever their percentage ownership is. So it's rigid. If you were that cardiologist that over 51% of control – you would have control of like the big decisions in the company. However, you wouldn't have control of how the profits are distributed. So even if you want to take those profits all for yourself or you want to pay someone higher, if you want to distribute the money, it's rigid. It has to be the 60-20-20 in that example. So the way around that as an S-corp is then you could bonus the money as a W-2. But then it's like, well, why are we an S-corp? Because on the bonus, it's treated just like a W-2. You're going to pay all those taxes that you were trying to uh, avoid by doing the distribution. So you have to be aware if you're doing an S-corp, it's very rigid. If you have other partners involved, the uh, the distributions at least can be, um, are rigid in the percentages of actually the company owned. The way around that would be the bonus, but then you have to question yourself, well, why be an S-corp? Because the whole reason for being an S-corp and paying the extra fees, the extra filings, running this payroll company to run the actual payroll is to save the taxes. So you have to evaluate the flexibility. Um, the dis the aspect of not having the flexibility for the distributions versus the tax efficiency of an S corporation. So one way around that would be an LLC partnership where you do have the, you could be 60, 20, 20, and the person that has majority control could distribute hundred percent of the profits to anybody. There's total flexibility in the LLC partnership, but the greatest tax savings of what we talked about would be not in a sole proprietorship, not in a, just a straight out LLC would be in the S corporation for this specifically. So, um, Let's discuss next the um, – let's jump right to the 401K and cash balance plan um, So, because we started to discuss that already. So the you know 401K and cash balance plan, um, Chris, talk to us a little bit about the, the ability to fund a cash balance plan. Like let's say – I know we have the sheets here. Like if, if there's a 40-year-old business owner – that has structured the 401k to max out 66,000 in the 401k. How much in addition to that could they put into a cash balance plan that's all a tax write-off? Yeah, so these are all these are based off of tables that the IRS puts out. So if you're 44, you could do for the first year contribution 139,000 that that's all a deductible contribution for the business. Yeah, and the, the, the nice thing about a cash balance plan, it's a hybrid plan. It's a bucket of money. All participants in your company will be part of that, and the actuary keeps track. But the nice thing is it's one account, and you can put a vesting period on it. Um, generally, the IRS wants to see a permanency test of this so that you have, you know, you can have it for 10 years, but they generally want to see it's at least there for five years. Now, if the business has cash flow problems or shuts down, there's an exception to that. And once you roll it, you can roll it out to an IRA in percentages to all the participants. But we've seen if you're a high-income earning business owner, this is a um, very a very good strategy. Um, I think very underutilized. A lot of our clients utilize this. 
um, to save a ton of taxes. There's asset protection features to it as well. Um, they do it while they have, you know, in their highest business income earning years on top of their 401k. And then once it's out, you know, we roll it to, to an IRA to, to be able to have more flexibility and it being more aggressively invested. Because the one thing about a cash balance plan is those actual assumptions are generally you end up in like a 40, 60, 50, 50 portfolio. So it's a huge tax deduction. But while it's operating as a cash balance plan, you're not going to get the as big of a growth as if you were on all the stock allocation, right. et cetera. Um, okay, so let's so 401k um, as a business owner, let's say you have multiple businesses um, that are totally unrelated. Could you have multiple 401ks? Yeah, absolutely. What do you need to watch out for, though? Um, is it common control interests, I believe? Um, so if you... If you're the owner of one company and another, there could technically be tests that could exclude your ability to make those contributions. Yeah, there's there's tests you have to make across the board. There's common ownership. There's employees if there's crossover. So we need to work with the third party administrator to determine that. But we have lots of clients that have multiple 401ks. Um, talk to us about the 402G limit. So technically, if you had two 401ks, you could put 66 into one and 66 in the other, but you have to be careful about one thing. And what is that one thing? Yeah, so that's going back to the elective deferral we were just talking about. So that's the, the 22,500 that you can put in, regardless of how many plans you have. Um, you know, That's capped no matter what. So if you're already maxing out the 22,500 via Roth contributions in one plan, you can still do the full 66 in another, but that either has to be after tax or profit sharing contributions. So hypothetically, you could have a, you know, your medical practice, let's say that you're, you're putting in a Roth 22,500, you're putting in a profit sharing of um, 30,000 and you put the rest into an after tax to convert to a Roth. So that plan gets fully maxed out to 66. Mm -hmm. The second plan you could do all as an after-tax contribution and then also convert that to Roth as well. So you could have 66 in one, 66 in another, um, as long as the, the 401ks are allowed to co coexist uh, next to each other with the two different businesses that you're involved with. Um, pretty cool. So, um, okay, well, let's move on. So next tip we have is around, uh, very appropriate to start talking about this with the FedEx golf tournament starting this isn't the fedex golf tournament though this is the the playoffs this is actually we're going to be discussing the masters in a quick second about the augusta rule but sorry yeah, ben continue you, no. yeah you stole you stole the you stole the intro from me so just take it from here <laughs> yeah so the next tax tip which is like you guys said underused maybe under discussed is called the augusta rule and this is based off of the masters golf tournament that happens in april every year and how this came to be was in Augusta, Georgia, they host the Masters every year in April. And over a seven to 14 day period, you'd have all the golfers, all their caddies, all their staff, all, everyone who puts together the tournament and all the fans, you know, descend down to Augusta for a two week period. And there's only so many hotels and there, there'd, be, there'd be hundreds of thousands of people that would, that would visit the city. So people would start renting out their homes to all these guests to accommodate everybody. So what the Augusta rule says is that you can rent out your home for up to 14 days and that rental income that you pool together over that 14 day period, you do not have to pay taxes on. So how does this make sense for a business owner? Back to tax tips for small businesses. You can rent out your home to your business for business purposes for, again, up to 14 days throughout the year, 
whether that's a monthly meeting, you know, a biannual or annual meeting or an end of the year meeting. Again, you can have 14 days where you can rent out your home to your business and all of the income that you receive from that rental is not considered taxable. So just walking through an example of this, let's say you have a million dollar home and again, a lease needs to be drawn up and appropriate rent needs to be charged. A good general rule of thumb is somewhere around 0.1% of the home's fair market value. So again, if you have a million dollar home, that would equate to about $1,000 a day of rent. If you follow that strategy and you rent out your home for 14 days, $1,000 a day, that's $14,000 worth of rental income. And if you're in the highest tax bracket at 37%, normally you'd be subject to a $5,000, over $5,000 tax liability on that income. But since you're under that 14-day limit, that $14,000, you're not subject to to federal taxes on. So literally, a and most business owners do business in their house. So it's literally, this is a bookkeeping where you have your business account in QuickBooks, set up a transaction, 1000 a month. Let's just say you have a recurring uh, team strategy meeting at your house where you keep board notes and everything. So 1000 a month goes from your business account to your personal account. And then if that was running through payroll and you're that million-dollar income earner, that would be coming out at 37% federal tax rate. That comes to you with a 0% tax rate because of this Augusta rule. Right. So the Augusta rule, obviously... Um, many good things came out of it. One is this, you know, easy tax savings for business owners that properly utilize it for legitimate business. I would say the second good thing that came out of it was a policy that we had to start at EWA during stock market hours, not having TVs on um, because of the Augusta rule, you know, there was some watching of golf during business hours. So it, we were able to calibrate into a really good strategy there for our firm as well. Well, I think you guys have any comments. on Yeah, that? I just think a lot of our employees were trying to better understand the rule. The rule is called the Augusta rule. So by kind of watching the masters, we're able to get a hand on this. And actually, I'd like to take this a step further. You know, Chris and I were more kind of learning by doing kind of guys. So maybe next time we're, you know, actually going down to Augusta to the masters to kind of see this rule in action. Again, kind of a conversation for a future day. But, you know, talking about it gives us a good understanding. But actually experiencing it, I think Chris would be. Hey, if you guys can get tickets for me as well. We're in. We're we're going. No PTO docs. Everything. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, hands-on experience is always the best. So you guys get the tickets, and we'll we'll do it. All right. We'll, All right. we'll, we'll talk off. All right. Then. Perfect. Hope you're enjoying this week's Finlet by EWA podcast. Uh, one quick disclosure before we talk about hiring your children on payroll, which can save a tremendous amount of taxes for your uh, family-owned business. I wanted to point out that this is a state-by-state state, uh, specific thing, so make sure to talk with your attorney uh, and look into the labor law rules in your state specifically before implementing this strategy. Some states allow this, some states do not. So again, check with your attorney, check with your CPA, and we're also happy to discuss with you. Now back to the show. So what's next? What's the next tax tip that we have? Chris, let's, let's hand it to you. You work with a lot of business owners. Ben does as well. So, Chris, what's another what's another strategy for business owners that have kids? Yeah, so this is one, like all these that we're talking about, underutilized, but you can actually hire your children. And for the 2023 tax year, if you're paid less than 13850 you don't have to file a tax return. So that's that number, if it sounds familiar, it's the standard deduction for single people. So as long as you're under, or as a kid, if you're earning that income, it's 0% tax savings. So 
Um, a lot of our clients that have business businesses and also have kids, they'll if there's stuff around the office that they can help with, small tasks or even for advertising, um, some kids will be models for the company, and um, we'll process a one-time payment of that amount for thirteen eight fifty, and it's immediately. If the business owner is in a thirty-seven percent bracket, that's an immediate thirty-seven percent tax savings on the thirteen thousand eight fifty. So does that have to go to the kid, or could that be utilized in the financial plan in some way? Yeah, or can so it be rerouted in a couple of transactions? So, like in reality, the majority of our clients, I believe, use this strategy. It's it's not it's not like it goes to the kid and the kid's like spending it on like yeah. Legos. It's right. going to the kid and going then going where? Yeah, that's a good point. So the second step, uh, generally, we'll have the kid max out a Roth IRA. So if you have the earned income, that opens the ability to fund for this year 6,500 into a Roth IRA. Um, and then beyond that, many of our clients who have kids also want to plan for their education. So they'll have a 529 plan established. So that remainder, the difference between the 13,850 and 6,500, that goes to a 529 plan. So, so the parents were already contributing the 529 plan. So instead of you know contributing 10,000 that the parent would have had to earn almost 14,000 to get to the 10, they can pay the kid 10 and then reroute it directly into what they were already planning. And so like yeah. per kid, as you said, what what's thirty seven percent of thirteen eight fifty? Hard to do math right now, but I mean it's almost five thousand per kid per year that you can save. So if you have three kids, it's just an easy fifteen a year. Again, talk to us about the audit risk. Um, we never recommend doing this unless it's actual legitimate work. So you give the example of modeling. So that's it. You know, if if the company has a social media page and their kids on it, that's legitimate business use. Um, other examples, you know, we have a client recently that their their kids are going to come in and, and keep track of the, all the drinks in the office and restock that and like create Excel spreadsheets to track that. That'd be a good example. One of our clients, you know, does the the, the garbage, does some cleaning, um, have their kids do all that kind of stuff. So it's, as long as it's legitimate work, I mean, this is a legitimate uh, strategy, you know, and and a completely underutilized but a great strategy that we recommend uh, for clients that want to involve their kids in the businesses. Yeah, and you can even go, that 13850 is the amount that you can do without having to file a return. But you could also, so the next, um, that 13850 is tax-free and then income up to 22000 for 2023. That, that income's a 10% bracket. So even if you're a business owner in the 37% bracket, you could go above that still, that above that 13850 and there's still tax savings. That's a good point. Yeah. So you could pay your kid like, Thirty grand, like thirteen eight fifty of that's zero percent federal taxes. Then the rest of that would be a ten percent tax. That's a, a lot better. If, if again you're utilizing that money, to like max out the five twenty nine plan, for example, and you're going to do that with your own money, you're just maxing out the five twenty nine plan now with a ten percent tax hit versus a thirty seven percent tax hit. Right. The only downside is you're actually if you go above that, your kid, you know, your kids are going to depending on what kind of entity you have, will pay FICA taxes. So they're going to pay the Medicare and the Social Security. So it's not an exact like 10 versus 37. It would be like a 10 because the parent would have been already been maxed out in their Social Security, whereas the kid, that would have to be reintroduced. So, right. But there's still a significant like sometimes like 15, 20, 25% tax savings, even if you go above that. But you know, if a kid's just modeling, it would be tough to go above 13850 if the kid's just taking out trash one hour a week. So, you know, look at like hourly rates of what you would pay and how much the kid is actually doing to determine right. um, determine this. But at least the 13850, if the kid can do enough work to get that 0%, um, that, you know, that's an amazing. Yeah. So talk to us about like 
the implementation of this? Like if someone was interested in doing this, like what would they have to do to actually implement this? Yeah, so it has to go through payroll. You know, it has to all be by the book. So we coordinate that. Um, we want to have a clean paper trail. So we want to show the payment going to the child. And then generally from there, we'll have the payroll company just wire it directly to the Roth IRA to the 529. Just make sure everything's clean. Or alternatively, we could set up a bank account for the kid with a parent, like a custodial account, have the payroll go there and then have the money then automatically drafted from the kid's bank account into the Roth or into the 529. Either way. So yeah, kids just officially go on payroll. And then from there, it's really, it can just be automated, which is really cool. So one time set up and then, um, so obviously we want to have commerce, highly recommend, you know, consult with your CPA, talk about the risks, the pros and the cons. Um, But if we can make this actual legitimate, they're doing work, they're getting paid at an hourly rate. it's a great way to save, you know, taxes above and beyond the regular ways. Right. So one quick side note, again, hope you're enjoying this week's FinLit by EWA podcast. Uh, next up, we're going to talk about different ways for using your car as a deduction in your business and specifically the section 179. So as a quick disclaimer, section 179, if your car is over 6,000 pounds, you can deduct in 2023 up to 28,900 of a value. Um, under the current tax code, there are bonus rules and the bonus is not capped. And the bonus allows in 2022, allowed you to take hundred percent, um, of the deduction, but this is getting phased out 20% per year. So now that we're in 2023, if you have a vehicle, you can do 80%, which includes the regular, uh, section 179 plus the bonus rule. So if you have a hundred thousand dollar car, you can deduct eighty thousand dollars eighty percent of the hundred thousand in 2023 and this will continue to get phased down 20 percent uh until along with other rules in 2026 get phased out now back to the show all right so next tip is around cars so ben talk to us about the different options for what how a business owner could use their car for a tax write-off yeah what, what are the options they have and how do they work yeah so i would say generally speaking there are three main options that we see day to day with our business owner clients in regards to their cars the first one pretty simple if you're leasing a business car you can deduct that payment that's a common strategy we see the second one is just using the standard irs mileage rate which in 2023 as we're filming is 65 cents per mile driven. And again, this is strictly for business miles. So what is it, what do I mean? What do I mean by a business mile? It's driving to a client meeting or driving to a speaking engagement or driving to anything business related that is not your normal commute. So driving to and from your place of work would not count as a business mile. So in this example, let's say over a, in 2023, you drove 10,000 business miles. You could say 65 cents per mile, boom, it's a $6,500 tax write-off based on your business travel throughout that year. The third one, and something that we'll talk about in greater detail here, is called Section 179, which is in reference to a specific section in the Internal Revenue Code that allows you to take an accelerated deduction based on the amount, the percentage amount that you use your business car in a calendar year. So, how this would work, there's a, there's a couple caveats. Number one, your car needs to be over 6,000 pounds. And the actual deduction that you need to be using it for has to be used for business purposes. So as an example, let's say you have a $100,000 car 
and 90% of the time it is used for business purposes. And again, this is tracked through clean books and records, mileage reports, all of that. 90% of the time it's used for business purposes. So that would be a $90,000 deduction that you would be able to take in that calendar year. And again, if you're a business owner that's in the highest tax bracket at 37%, that's a $33,000 tax savings by simply performing that write-off and getting that 37% tax break on the, the $90,000 deduction that you're taking. Um, Which is five times higher than the mileage deduction for someone driving 10,000. That's that's correct. And you can do either the mileage deduction or section 179. You can't do you both. Can't, you cannot double dip, you can't do both. Um, so let's let's real quick yeah, then let's talk about so someone that's doing the mileage has to create a huge like log of miles which could be a pain in the butt. Mm-hmm. Someone that does a lease inside and you have to do the lease inside the business can deduct the lease payments and then obviously like repairs and certain expenses. Or the third option yeah. is the section 179 um, where you just write off the car. Now, a couple of things of that you do have to keep books and records if you're using this for business and personal. So one way to work around would be if you have one car for personal use and then one car in the business, you could write off 100% of that section 179 right. if it was owned by the business and solely for the business. So that's one workaround. If you're doing a percentage like using it for everything, then you do have to keep clean books and records of, you know, if it's 90% in your example, proving that you have 90% if you ever get audited. Easy to do. Usually business owners, you know, lives are so um, intertwined personally and professionally. A lot of the majority of what you do is, you know, is for business. Um, so... With that being said, let's just go through some examples. So you said $33,000 tax write-off for the Section 179. Now, in five years, if that person goes and sells the car, uh, the $100,000 car, they're now selling it for $30,000. That $30,000, and then they try to do it again, which they obviously can do. Mm -hmm. If they sell that $30,000 and buy a new $100,000 car, that $30,000 gets recaptured. So the next time around... They get the deduction on the hundred. They have to repay tax on the thirty. So now it's only a seventy thousand dollars deduction. Now, if they kept that car forever and just drove it into the ground, and they bought a second car in the business, then they could get the full write-off. But I just want to be clear: there's if you sell that old car and do it again, which you absolutely can do, there's a recapture. But if you don't sell that car and you do a new car, then you can um, drive it in the ground and get the full write-off sure. as well. So let's go through some examples. So, you know, what's a, so the biggest thing? And you can just Google Section One Seventy Nine, but like. So BMW, which there's a couple cars that would qualify. What are those? Uh, I believe the X5. X5, X7, Audi, Q, the Q8, Q7, Escalade, Cadillac would qualify. Tesla Model X would qualify. Um, you know, the, the um, Lincoln has the Navigator that would qualify. Just trying to give some real-world examples. Yeah, I think most, like if you own a, like a lot of the trucks, you know, if you own a business that, I don't know, like landscaping or something like that, if you need a pickup truck, those will those will qualify. One of our clients, Sprinter Vans, those qualify. Yep. Um, so anything over 6,000 pounds, most um, most car companies have one line one, that's yeah. going to be a heavy vehicle. And sometimes they have two, like the BMW, the X5, and the X7. So right. um, just check the curb weight. And then so the other rule, when does this have to be? This is key. So if someone's trying to do this for 2023, what's the – like an IRA – for 2023 as a cutoff of like April 15th of 2024, that technically you can still go back and get that for 2023. How does section 179 work? Like when does the car have to be purchased and put in use? Yeah, it has to be put in use in the calendar year in which you plan on taking the deduction. So if you 
buy the car, at, you know, let's say you buy the car in 2023, but you actually, I'm sorry, let's say you buy the car in 2022, but it doesn't actually get put in use until 2023. You can't claim section 179 back in 2022. It has to be done in the calendar year in which you buy the car and actually put it in use. So if you're trying to do this for 2023, it's got, you got it. You order a Tesla and it's on a two month backlog. You better act. That car has to be here and put into use before December 31st of 2023. If you're trying to do it for 2024 then make sure it doesn't get put into use before 1231 or else, you know, you're going to, only be eligible for that deduction um, in a year maybe where your income is lower if you're trying to time it. So make sure the timing is is good there because a lot of cars, because of the COVID, still backlogged, take one, two, sometimes we've even seen three months to be put into place. And, and, and that's, that's really the main point of this. And a huge point is this should be done in a year in which you have a high taxable income or you have high profits and you want to lower that income, particularly if you're in that 37% tax bracket. So it does take some foresight planning to say, hey, we need to get this car in place in this calendar year for this. Otherwise, if you if you don't time it right and you could be trying to do a tax deduction in a year in which you didn't even mean to be doing it. So that's why the, you got to be super strategic in, in when you put the car into use. Okay, perfect. Um, well, welcome any questions on that. And obviously, you know, work with the CPA. There's you know, some CPAs we find are really... Um, are really aggressive and we don't recommend to be really aggressive and some CPAs are like any little bit of risk like no let's don't do that the reality is if you're a high income earner the risk of you getting audited because one of these strategies goes up very little and as long as you have it, this also forces you to keep clean books and records and generally it, it allows you if you're doing all these strategies it makes you proactive on everything so we find that um, people clients that do do all these strategies have the the, the best books, the best records, the best, you know, they're audit proof because of the, the systems that are put into place. Um, so I think that's a huge misconception is, oh, I don't want to get audited. Well, this doesn't really change your chance of being audited. If you're high income or the high rest is most likely going to look at you if they do. Um, but just try to save as much taxes as possible all within a legal, legal structure. And when there's a, uh, a gray area, work with professionals, work with an advisor, work with a CPA, um, you know, generally we see biases sometimes between attorneys, CPAs, and, and advisors. They all view things. So and make sure you have a trusted quarterback that can communicate with all those professionals to come to an agreement and alignment that ultimately you as the client make the final decision um, on. So just a couple other, you know, quick tax tips. So what are some other ways, you know, we talk a lot about HSA. So Chris, give us the, for a business owner that has a health insurance plan, talk to us uh, briefly about the advantage of, of having an HSA potentially as an option. Yeah, so if you have a high deductible health plan, you're eligible to fund an HSA for this year in 2023. I believe the limit's 7,500. Um, so that's it's the only type of account that's triple tax-free. So you get a tax deduction. When you put the money in, it grows tax-free. And then whenever you take it out, it's also tax-free. Um, the caveat, however, is the distribution has to be used for a qualified medical expense. But unlike the other account that's typically brought up with HSAs, which is an FSA, HSAs roll over year to year, and that balance is yours until you spend it. Um, so for a lot of our clients, we view these as another long-term savings account that's very tax efficient because inevitably whenever you get to retirement age there's going to be some sort of medical cost that comes up whether it's prescriptions co-pays um, most common is medicare premiums you can use to pay out of the hsa um, if we can do a good job 
in the accumulation years of funding these accounts, we'll have a big tax-free bucket that can be used for um, for those costs later down the road. And avoid tax bracket hikes and avoid extra Medicare surcharges. That those distributions, if used for medical, don't have to don't go into your modified adjusted gross income, which is right. huge. So, and just bringing down the math. I mean, so someone that was doing this would pay. You know, let's say Ben's paying three hundred bucks a month for a health insurance plan, and it's a low deductible plan. And so, if he's healthy that year, he basically just wasted three hundred bucks a month. If I chose a HSA plan, maybe I'm paying one fifty a month. I just saved eighteen hundred dollars a year. Now, if I have a serious health concern, now I have to go out of pocket a lot more than Ben's. So maybe I have to come out of pocket five thousand. So now the eighteen hundred dollars savings doesn't look so good when I had to come out of $5,000 pocket, out of pocket. That's a $3,200 behind now. But if I max out an HSA, which next year is over 8,000 and I'm in the highest tax bracket, that's almost 3,000 I save right there. So that basically puts us at a break even. So if I'm in a high deductible plan, saving the monthly premiums, also maxing out the HSA, taking that tax right off, even if I reach my like out of pocket maximum compared to Ben, I'm basically going to be in most plans we've analyzed at a break even compared to Ben. So the key is if you have the cash flow to max out that HSA and get that tax right off, even on a bad year health wise, you're still going to be in a similar position than you know low deductible. Just psychologically you have to come up with, okay, I'm I'm gonna max this HSA. If something comes up, I'm not gonna use that HSA. I'm gonna let compounding growth and that tax free environment work for me. I'm gonna pay for those medical costs out of pocket. So I also have to be disciplined and have that emergency fund or cash set aside to pay those medical costs out of pocket to have the greatest effect on having a high deductible plan for my family and also max out HSA and doing exactly what Chris said. Um, and just one other note on the HSA, just to put a bow on that, be sure it is actually invested in equities, particularly if we're pursuing the strategy that we just discussed. A lot of times you're those contributions are done just directly through your employer or they're through like your employer's online portal. And they could be sent to just a, a cash account. So you could think that your HSA is growing tax-free, invested in equities for the long term. And if you're not diligent in checking that, it could just be sitting in a cash account. So it's really important to make sure that if you're pursuing the strategy that we just outlined in which the HSA is growing for the, the mid and long term, we want to make sure that there's, there's equity exposure. No question. That's a great point, Ben. So um, a couple other things. So... The you know we had did a whole podcast on real estate. I'm going to point everyone if you think if you're a business owner and you own real estate, there's tax benefits to that. But there's this whole just real briefly reference last you know a couple of weeks ago by the time this is published episode on the real estate we go into detail. There's a difference between in a universe of tax rates. There's an active tax rate which is that federal 10 up to 37, and there's the passive tax rates which if you're you know long term are going to be capital gain rates or short term would also be those active rates. As far as getting a a good deduction on your real estate stuff, like depreciation and expenses, even cost segregation, all that stuff, that's going to help you only if you're an active participant in that real estate, if you're looking to offset your W-2 or active income. If you're not, the real estate's great, but it's only going to help you offset other passive income. But you don't have any other passive income that's really not going to do you good until later. So again, go back and reference that real estate episode. We go extremely detailed into how the, the taxes and complexities around real estate investing work. Um, but do want to bring, bring that up as that's a huge strategy if properly utilized for business owners um, that have multiple real estate units that works the best. Or if they, you know, potentially if you have a spouse that's able to take that active role and you're married filing jointly, then you can, you know, 
that active role of the one spouse handling the real estate, all that tax benefit can go and really help uh, the W-2 or the distributions of like an S corporation, for example, of the doctor, the other spouse. Uh, that can be an extremely tax efficient strategy to do. So um, other tax related stuff, obviously there's lots of you know charitable stuff you can do. One other recent one that we've run into is what's called an EITC credit. This is specific in Pennsylvania, but essentially if there's certain schools, um, you know, I think K through eight or K through 12 that qualify and you can make a two year commitment. And essentially if someone owed $10,000 in Pennsylvania state tax, they could contribute 9,000 to that school and there were 90% of, of their contribution would offset their state tax. Um, as well. So if you're charitably inclined and want to help, you know, have a certain school that would qualify, this is an easy way to p- basically not avoid state taxes, but to redirect your state taxes specifically to a school that you're passionate about and then come out of pocket just a little bit for your state tax. And it's called an EITC credit, um, which is uh, a strategy that, you know, we, we've recommended a lot of, of business owner clients as well. Um, but then Chris, thanks so much for joining. Any last uh, minute tax tips in, uh, in general for business owners? No, I think we hit on a lot of the big ones today. So I think this is super useful and uh, making sure that all these options are presented. And, you know, a lot of these are just under under reported and under under discussed. So making sure that everyone's super educated on what their options are. Awesome. Um, Well, Chris, can you speak to uh, specifically there's there's some pretty big tax advantages. I know you're considering personally. Um, between being like a single and then married filing jointly. So um, is this why you're considering some of these personal considerations because of the tax rates? Or can you talk to the audience a little bit about uh, how this works? Yeah, so we'll keep it strictly business here from a tax standpoint. Um, If you're single, you have half the runway on the tax brackets. So um, for the 10% bracket, if you're single, 22,000 of incomes, the cap for 10% versus 44 for married. So um, not that you want to get married strictly for tax benefits, but it, it certainly certainly helps. So just hypothetically, if there's a million dollars as a single income earner versus a million dollars same between a married couple, the married couple we've analyzed would pay like, I, I think it's like a, a little bit over $30,000 less in federal taxes just for the fact that they're married versus, uh, versus single. So some big tax benefits, depending on what kind of tax bracket you fall into. At certain income levels, it's like relevant. But in those high income levels, it becomes a huge, a huge ordeal. So thanks for bringing that up, Chris. All right. Well, thanks for joining us on this week's episode of Finlet. Uh, please reach out if you have any questions. And if you haven't done so already, please uh, hit subscribe. Make sure you follow the, the podcast, uh, depending on what platform, and please rate uh, as well. This is how we get the most reach to benefit the most uh, amount of listeners on financial literacy and advanced topics as possible.